What does it even mean? Your pursuit of gut health is probably taking you down a rabbit hole of misinformation, useless concoctions, and false promises. So this is where this uncensored podcast comes in. The gastroenterologist and his daughter is the first of its kind, bringing a specialist gastroenterologist and his daughter, yours truly, to help you navigate the world of all things gut health from mouth to bum and everything in between. Join me, Sandra McHale, gut health specialist dietitian and founder of Nutrition A to Z, and my father, Wagdi McHale, specialist gastroenterologist and internist, as we unpack the most talked about topics in gut health, covering both the medical and lifestyle aspects of all things gut, with a ton of comedy and fecal tete-a-tete. Right, let's get into it. Welcome back to the pod listeners. And today we're just picking up where we left off on IBD, that's inflammatory bowel disease. But before we get into it, we have another question from a listener. And this time it is from Lena. Dad, are you ready for the question? Yes, I'm ready. Let's okay, I just wanted to check that you're there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so question is, my naturopath recommended getting regular colonic irrigation to keep my intestines free of harmful toxins. How often would you suggest I should get one? Okay. How about Sandra? I think in your book you had some talk about this subject. Can you take yes. the question? <laughs> uh, I mean, the simple answer would, would be never. I mean, when we had to look at colonics which is which is really something that I find heavily marketed by this whole wellness industry. So I might, what I might do, let me actually just pull it up. What I might do is, and this is again, another shameless book marketing, is I might read an excerpt from my book that specifically talks about the difference between enemas and colonics or colonic irrigation. Uh, and that's on page 101 and 102. And I'm just going to purely focus on the colonics. So a colonic or colonic irrigation differs from an enema in the amount of fluid used. So just a little side note, if you are not familiar with what enemas or colonics are, basically it's a procedure where a tube is inserted into your rectum via your anus and liquid is injected. Normally it's water to stimulate your bowels to empty fully. So in the case of an enema, we're looking at a one-off infusion of fluid, whereas with a colonic, it is a continuous. In other words, multiple infusions are administered for about 45 minutes. Sorry yeah. to interrupt you. How many liters or gallons they used for the uh, irrigation? Do you know what? I do not remember. How many liters are we talking about? 16 gallons. What's 16 gallons in liters, Dad? It's too many. <laughs> <laughs> So basically, they're just heavily marketed by the wellness unicorn industry, as I like to call them, and gut health social media gurus claiming to cleanse your bowel, ridding it of toxins, which by now you should realize is utter nonsense and lacking any scientific backing. While there is a space for colonics in some medical settings, unfortunately, the procedure has been heavily commercialized towards those seeking a squeaky cleansed bum to feel light and rid of waste. Colonics cannot be done at home since special equipment is required, including a trained professional. Now, this glorified procedure comes with a ton of risks, including electrolyte imbalances, bowel perforation, disturbing the balance of your gut microbiota, dehydration, and infection, to name a few. So my suggestion is to let that part of your digestive system perform its duty as part of cleansing without external aid, unless it is indicated by your health professional. 
Do you agree? Definitely. And even the FDA, the uh, Food and Drug Association in the United States, they never recommend this procedure because of the material not approved. Even the professionals who do these things, the caloric irrigation, they are not certified as a doctor or uh, medical professions. So it is dangerous. It's useless. If, but it depends. If you spend your money, it's up to you. So our simple answer is we would like you to reconsider colonic irrigation later and just you know let that part of your digestive system do its own thing with any external aid. So you should not get one too often. All right, getting into the topic of ulcerative colitis, Dad. I know we've covered Crohn's disease in our last episode. So how is ulcerative colitis different? We talked about both of them in the previous episode. I hope this episode will, will not be as lengthy as the previous <laughs> We hope we didn't bore people. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, you know, ulcerative colitis, as we said, it's a chronic inflammatory bowel disease. It's characterized by colonic inflammation extending at variable extent of the rectum. It starts at the rectum and goes without interruption up to the to involve left side or the whole colon. It is the pathogenesis is multifactorial and it involves the genetic predisposition, bacterial barrier defects, dysregulation of immune response, and environmental factors as well. It's different from Crohn's disease in the aspect of involvement of the only the colon. And as we said before, the Crohn's disease is uh, any any part of the intestinal tract from the mouth to the anus. And the, as well, the involvement of the, uh, the wall of the intestine, it is in the eyes of Crohn's superficial, doesn't go that deep as Crohn's disease. This is the main thing, but there is another some different uh, aspects, but we, we don't talk about all of them now. And the symptoms as well is a bit of different, as we said in the previous episode. So we spoke about the symptoms last time, and with Crohn's disease, it, it is very, very systematic, right? You mentioned that it's not just your gut that's involved. There's a whole bunch of other systems that are, that are involved too. Is it the same for ulcerative colitis, or is it only localized to the gut? It's mainly localized to the gut, but we can have systemic problems as well. But the main thing is the diarrhea with blood or without blood, with rect, sometimes rectal bleeding, tenismus, which is the feeling to poo, but you are unable to do it. Other thing, which is the bowel urgency. This is reported by many people with ulcerative colitis as one of the most disturbative symptoms. Abdominal pain is mild and tenor is mild. It's not for Crohn's disease, abdominal pain is more prominent because of the uh, structures of the uh, small intestine. Another point is the sexual dysfunction. And does the diagnostic criteria for ulcerative colitis differ from Crohn's disease? The main issue is almost the same, but uh, to diagnose the uh, ulcerative colitis is based on combination of clinical, biochemical, and stool endoscopic and, and imaging. And even the histology is, is a bit different. 
as we said before, history is very important in details. Physical examination is important. And then we'll go to the biochemical test. We'll do the blood test like full blood count. The, the, it will give us an idea about if there is any anemia, if the platelets are high in, in infection or inflammation. Is We call it thrombocytosis. And the, the white cell count, which is, if it is high, we call it leukocytosis, like if it infection or of inflammation. The biomarkers, which in, indicate inflammation, we call it inflammatory markers, the CRP and ESR. This should be done as well. And as we said in the Crohn's, the hepatitis B marker and TB should be ruled out. In addition, we have to have a baseline of liver function test in ulcerative colitis because it's combined with some liver disease. This is the biochemical. And the stool analysis, the most important, which you usually do it, the fecal calprotectin and stool for C. difficile and to see if there's any parasite or ova or signs of signs of infection. This is the, the stool. Another thing, which is the vaccination assessment, should be done because before starting the any immune suppressive treatment, we have to be sure that the patient is well vaccinated, especially for hepatitis B, and now for shingles as well for hepatitis. That's the main thing, and for non-infection which has got vaccination should be done. This is the main diagnostic from the point of view of the biochemical and blood test. Imaging, which is the radiology, if we have the expert for uh, ultrasound, we can can help. Sometimes we do CT scan with the contrast, but the main stay or the main cornerstone of the diagnosis is the colonoscopy and the biopsy. This is the most useful and discovered feature of ulcerative colitis. And there is something we have to be careful about, which is if we suspect severe ulcerative colitis and due to the increased risk of the bowel perforation, we don't have to do a complete ileocolonoscopic procedure. And sometimes, and many times, I go with the endoscope and I find it severely inflamed. I don't have to push because the disease starts at the rectum. If I see this is inflamed and I take biopsy and go out straight away. And in some cases, we don't have to even to do cleaning or sedation. We can do sigmoidoscopy, which is a short, flexible sigmoidoscopy, and it will give us the diagnosis. This is the main thing for uh, for the for diagnosis to come yeah. to come up with a diagnosis. If you had to look at, let's say again, in the last month per se, or the, maybe the last couple of months, what's the ratio of your patients between ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, or is it fairly fifty fifty? I think for the la- last month, I've seen more of ulcerative colitis than Crohn's, maybe okay. sixty forty or something like this. All right. Well, yeah. I mean, in in my case, I mainly, I think I mentioned that in the previous episode, I do have more ulcerative colitis clients than Crohn's disease. I'm not sure if that has anything to do with um, prevalence, but this is just more anecdotal than what we've seen in practice. And once the diagnosis is made, so you are diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, what are the next steps, Dad? 
we have to go to the manager. Before I go to medical management of ulcerative colitis, can you give us a hint about the nutrition approach? You know, I know I've spoken briefly about diet in general when it comes to uh, inflammatory bowel disease in the first episode. And there are definitely similarities between the dietary management of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, especially around the idea of fiber modification, depending on whether the patient is experiencing a flare-up or is in remission. Now, we've spoken about some general risk reduction strategies in the previous episode from a lifestyle perspective when it comes to IBD, but to be specific to ulcerative colitis, and when I'm personally looking at diet, I'm looking at three goals. So the first goal would be symptom control. The second would be addressing the inflammation, so focusing on an anti-inflammatory approach. And then three, my third goal is really, I call it gut restoration or really improving microbial diversity. So enriching that inner ecosystem that resides within the digestive tract. Because one thing that we do, I think we mentioned previously in, in multiple episodes is, and there's one thing that we do see with some gut conditions like inflammatory bowel disease, like celiac disease, or even just other autoimmune disorders is poor microbial diversity. So the goal here, which is my third one, is to really boost that up. So for symptom control, now the goal is to really reduce the frequency and volume of bowel movements, alleviate any tummy issues or tummy discomfort, and minimize the risk of complications. But also, apart from symptom control, it's really ensuring the nutritional adequacy of the diet. Daddy, you know, we spoke about the risk of malnutrition, but also the risk of some nutrient deficiencies. And one thing that I do definitely see is iron deficiency when it comes to my ulcerative colitis clients. So I'm not going to say the majority of them, but most of them do end up having to, you know, having to have an iron infusion at different points in time, um, specifically for my female clients who are, who end up getting pregnant. So it's also really nice to kind of follow my clients through, you know, during, you know, preconception, during pregnancy, throughout pregnancy and postnatally. So if we had to look at symptom control, Again, the main guidelines here is playing around with fiber, and it's not, again, complete elimination of fiber, but we're playing around with the different sources of fiber. So the types of fiber that we try to sort of reduce, not to exacerbate the symptoms, are things like, you know, um, insoluble fiber, so the bulk. So we're looking at the skins of your fruits and vegetables, whole grain, nuts, and seeds. These foods may be more challenging to digest during the active phase of ulcerative colitis. So sometimes it's just a reduction of these types of fiber. But it's also important to still choose soluble types of fiber. And these are found in food things like oats, bananas, um, peeled fruits. Perhaps they're better tolerated during these active flare-ups. Now, the other thing is high residue are foods that actually add a lot of bulk and I would look at temporary reducing things like your raw vegetables and fruits with their skin on because these foods can actually uh, contribute to bowel stimulation and increase discomfort. Now, so it's not uh, recommended to uh, restrict the patient completely from fiber and this thing because uh, some people, they are in very restricted diet that may affect this, their health generally. 
Exactly. And no, and, and it's it's not. I mean, but we're talking about ancient thinking back in the day. If you're experiencing, you know, I mean, that's the same thing with diarrhea. If someone's going through an episode of diarrhea, there's this whole brat diet that's not scientifically backed whatsoever, and it's just you know keeping it as bland as possible. But we still do want to provide some nourishment to your gut as well. So it's just being very mindful of the types of fiber in your diet that you have to play around with and the amount of bulk. But again, as I mentioned in the previous episode, Dad, personalization is crucial here. You really need to look at an, an, an individual's response and an individual's triggers. Now, the other thing that could be considered during the active phase of ulcerative colitis is going on this low FODMAP approach or a modified FODMAP approach. Now, again, we've spoken about FODMAPs multiple, multiple times throughout this podcast, and I do remember specifically saying that we don't have a specific, let's say, inflammatory bowel disease diet, whether it's Crohn's disease, but this aspect of reducing fermentable sugars temporarily to control symptoms like bowel movement frequency, like stomach pain, stomach cramps, and bloating could be beneficial for some. So perhaps this is anecdotal, but I've personally seen a lot of success with my clients when we came on a modified FODMAP elimination, not a full one. So we still need to ensure good plant diversity. But as I said, you have to work closely with your dietitian. So as a quick summary, for a symptom control perspective, I'm looking at two things, playing around with fiber and possibly going on a modified low FODMAP approach if indicated. Now, my second goal is, right, if my clients are in, in remission, the goal here is to focus on an anti-inflammatory diet or an anti-inflammatory approach. So when I'm talking about an anti-inflammatory approach, the first thing that comes to mind is looking at the types of fat in your food. Apart from all the colorful fruits and vegetables that we gradually bring back, we're looking at foods that have high anti-inflammatory properties, one of them being omega-3 fats. So these are anti-inflammatory fats that are found in, probably mentioned in our you know previous episode, your marine sources such as salmon, mackerel, sardines, and trout. So these specific fats have been shown to potentially alleviate symptoms and promote better gut health in people with ulcerative colitis. Now, from a plant source perspective, I generally look at things like your walnuts, flax seeds, and chia seeds. Um, again, introducing them gradually when indicated if they're not going through a flare-up. For those who do not consume marine sources, this is where you can consider supplementation with a an algae-based omega-3 supplement. Um, but again, you'll need to discuss that with your healthcare team. So first point we look at are these anti-inflammatory fats. Now, what we want to reduce is these pro-inflammatory fats. And this is when I'm looking at saturated fats. So these are the fats found in your animal fats, palm, and coconut oil. Now, if we had to look at the majority of the time, where do people get their saturated fats from? It's from red meats and processed meats. Also, there is a recommendation to limit dairy fat because of the alignment and the idea of, right, if we reduce the saturated fat intake, that may help alleviate symptoms because saturated fats are linked to inflammation and could potentially worsen symptoms. So again, there's a lot of controversy around dairy, but what I usually do is A, I just look at how much dairy is in their diet, looking at the quality of the dairy. So for example, natural yogurts are fantastic. 
things like goat's cheese and feta. These are the ones that I, uh, you know, add to the list of dairy foods that they can include. When their gut allows them to, kefir, which is fermented uh, milk, is a natural source of probiotic too. So these tend to be the dairy choices that I would recommend. The ones that I would, you know, try to reduce if they were to be consumed in excess are things like your yellow cheese, you know, your cheddar cheese, your hard cheese. They tend to be much, much higher in saturated fats. So this is talking about these pro-inflammatory fats in our diet. The second food components that I personally maybe I'm strict with with my uh, clients with inflammatory bowel disease or ulcerative, you know, specifically ulcerative colitis is avoiding things like your emulsifiers that I've mentioned in the previous episode, artificial sweeteners, maltodextrin, and other additives like titanium dioxide. Now, these additives are commonly found in processed foods. They've been linked to a potential disruption of your gut barrier function and your gut microbial balance, which can contribute to the progression of the disease or even progression of symptoms in clients with ulcerative colitis. So if I haven't lost you yet, we've got yeah, one symptom. Okay. I'm, I'm just listening. <laughs> All I right, think we'll the go. patient would be happy to have to follow your advice and they can uh, eat whatever you advise them. Well, hopefully. But I mean, again, it's it's really about working closely with your dietitian and gastroenterologist. Dad, before I continue talking about the dietary goals and with my third and final goal, could you maybe walk us through the medical management of ulcerative colitis? The medical management of ulcerative colitis, we, as we said before, it should be done in multidisciplinary team, gastroenterologist, IBD nurse, dietitian, surgeon, radiologist, and sometimes we need a special pathologist who is interested in uh, IBD histopathology. And with the recent revised guidelines, we treat patients as two categories, mild to moderate active ulcerative colitis or moderate to severe active ulcerative colitis. And we have many scoring systems to do this, but the, the most used is called Mayo score system. So we don't go in details for this. As we said before, the goal of treatment is clinical response and induced remission and maintenance treatment, steroid-free clinical remission, and mucosal healing. This will be affect the lifestyle of the patients. For uh, the medical treatment of mild to moderate disease, as we said before, you've got groups of medications. We The five minocensalate, which is not used very frequent in Crohn's disease, it's used here. It is forms of the five ASA, which is oral and topical for induction of treatment, induction of and remission, we can use this sometimes oral and topical or both according to the uh, extent of the disease. And for the maintenance, we use the other group, which is the thiopyrins, which is one of them has a thiopyrin, no details to be said about that because you will discuss it with your doctor. And the important thing that this type of medication it will start after six weeks. So the this will be explained by your gastroenterologist. 
Do you have to use antibiotics at any point in time? If we suspect infection and we can check for infection as well, and sometimes we start with the antibiotic for two weeks or more, it depends if there is infection, and then we start the specific treatment for ulcerative colitis. Okay. All right, so that's for the mild and moderate category. How about the moderate to severe? The moderate to severe ulcerative colitis, we usually induce remission by steroid, as we said, the group of steroid. And okay. this is not to be used as a maintenance because of the list of side effects. And then we go for maintenance with other modalities. The biologic is frequently used as well, which have got the four groups, as we said before. And there is another one which is uh, oral tablet was recently approved for treatment of severe ulcerative colitis. The details of this will be discussed as well with the uh, your doctor because there is specific uh, information about that. It is important not to stop medication and not to change medication without consulting your doctor. And follow-up is very, very important and specific for patient on biologic because maybe you not responding to the first one, and maybe the response will be failed in the future. So this depends on the regular follow-up with the, your gastroenterologist here. How often it, do you follow up with your patients? I want to start with at least after six weeks from treatment, at least, uh, or, or earlier if, we, if this severe case, and then according to the response. And there is, we got systems for this. We just discuss it with the patient because maybe after six months, we have to do another colonoscopy for, uh, to, to see if there is any mucosal healing or not. Okay. And then can ulcerative colitis be uh, life-threatening at any point in time? About 25% of patients with ulcerative colitis, sometimes they, they go into acute severe ulcerative colitis, which is one of the complications for ulcerative colitis, and this needs hospitalization. At the same time of this, we can see if they had frequent bowel movements and bloody diarrhea six times or more. We could rapid trade, rapid pulse, more than 90 minutes, 90 beats per minute, abdominal tenderness, fever, anemia, increase inflammatory markers like ESR, calprotectin, and CRP. Uh, all of this will denote that the patient has got severe ulcerative colitis and he needs hospitalization. So the management of this is due to in the hospital, there is specific regimen and specific dealing with this case because as soon as the patient comes, we do the general checkup and principal, principal investigations and most of the time, or always, we have to consider surgery in these cases. So the surgeon has to be informed and the whole team is involved for treatment of such important or serious disease. Okay, so as soon as, you know, upon admission, there's already the talk of surgery. Definitely. All right, and the patient is generally aware of that, of course. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. and. 
I mean, I'm not going to talk about the dietary side from a hospitalization perspective, because at some point, you know, we've spoken about the different forms of nutrition support in the previous episode. So I, I assume that's the same thing. You know, if someone's hospitalized with ulcerative colitis, depending on the state of their gut, you might need to actually consider something called enteral nutrition. And that, but that, as I said, that is probably too detailed for this podcast. Dad, there's a question that generally pops up especially for some people who wish to get pregnant. Can you have a normal pregnancy if you have inflammatory bowel disease? Definitely. Most of the people with Crohn's disease or cephalitis can have normal pregnancy and healthy babies. But you have to, should be planned pregnancy. You should plan with your doctor, with a gastroenterologist, and your gynecologist that you want to get pregnant because we you have to be pregnant when you are in remission not during the active disease okay this and is- then the medication i was going to say is the medication safe or the treatments are they safe for pregnancy yeah most of the medication used in inflammatory bowel disease are safe during pregnancy there is two groups which we don't use at all in pregnancy your doctor will tell you about them otherwise you can you don't stop even most of the biologic you don't stop them during pregnancy except the one we don't use and don't change or stop medication without consulting your gastroenterologist okay so it's really important to keep everyone in the loop (laughs) i think that's the case with everything so like don't don't self-prescribe and self-manage. You have to have a team behind you. And can breastfeeding uh, impact babies negatively at all? No, not at all. Breastfeeding should not affect uh, affected by Crohn's disease or colitis management. So you continue breastfeeding along with feeding of your baby if solid food later on after six months up to two years of age. It depends on your, in your baby and uh, your, your feeding. Uh, other point which has to be mentioned that after delivery, you don't give your baby live vaccine for the first six months. This is and by be- yeah, and by live vaccines for anyone that doesn't know what live vaccines are. So basically, they're a type of vaccine that uses a weakened or live form of virus or a bacteria to stimulate your immune response in the body. So unlike some vaccines that use the killed or inactivated forms of the pathogen, live vaccines contain a version of that virus or bacteria that is still able to replicate but has been modified to to, to be less, let's say, harmful. Before I say management, you said we'll we'll talk about the the final goal of nutrition. How about you tell us about it? I feel like we're playing a tennis match, Dad. It's like back and forth. So, but to, to, to kind of close up my part of the dietary side of things and We said one would be symptom control. The second would be to focus on anti-inflammatory diet when you're in remission. And then the third would be to improve microbial diversity 
targeting your gut microbiome to help restore the health of your gut lining. And this is where we may use things like probiotics. We want to focus on things called prebiotics. So these are the different types of fibers that nourish our inner ecosystem. So dad, do you use probiotics with your patients at all with ulcerative colitis? Actually, no, no as at all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> However, there is some sort of specific probiotic the use it in ulcerative colitis but it's better to be used in remission not during active disease yeah so there's definitely a lot of research still going on when it comes to the use of probiotics uh, especially in ulcerative colitis um, and obviously the evidence supporting the specific strains can vary. So when we're talking about probiotics for those who have no idea what a probiotic is so it's basically a live, bacteria or yeast that is known to provide the host, which is us, a benefit in, if taken in a specific amount. Now, it's important to note that individual responses to probiotics can also differ. And right now, before you jump on any probiotic supplement, whether you have ulcerative colitis or not, you always need to consult your healthcare professional. I always tell my clients, you have to treat probiotics like medication because you need to know what are you targeting? Are you trying, you know, is there a specific symptom you're trying to address? So there are certain probiotic strains. So these are specific types of bacteria or yeast that have been studied in relation to ulcerative colitis. And I just wanted to mention a few, not going into great detail. Um, one very popular probiotic is a combination that contains various strains of bacteria, mainly from the bifidobacterium species and the lactobacillus species as well. So I don't know, Dad, if you've ever come across a probiotic called VSL-3. Now, this is not sponsored by them, but this has been actually a probiotic that's been widely used in ulcerative colitis if you've been in remission only. Yeah, this is the one I was mentioning yep. <laughs> well now I did it's actually quite known and, and quite widely used in ulcerative colitis um because a lot of the studies using the specific combination have explored the potential benefits when it comes to you know maintaining or restoring gut health and uh, looking at the level and degree of inflammation and so on. So this specific probiotic is a multi-strain or a combination strain probiotic. And then you have other single strain probiotics, meaning using only one type of species or one type of bacteria. So one is called Lactobacillus rhamnosus GG. LGG is a very, very um, popular and well-studied probiotic strain that can maintain and restore gut health. And it may have a positive impact on IBD, specifically ulcerative colitis. The bifidobacterium strains as well that I've mentioned. And then um, there's another strain, which is the um, E. coli strain, but E. coli Nissel 1917. This is another probiotic strain that is you know, being studied right now for its ability to modulate the immune response in the gut and has shown some promise in the management of ulcerative colitis. But by saying that though, I always, you know, as I said, you need to look at the evidence you also need to look at the, the the benefits versus risks based on your specific health status, your medical history. Um, so as I always say, you need to consult your doctor. Now, rather than focus on probiotics, if you're in remission, we want to focus on diversity and fibers. This is when prebiotics come in. And when I'm talking about prebiotics, I'm talking about food for your probiotics. So a few examples of prebiotic foods that I've probably mentioned you know, throughout this podcast would be things like mushrooms, 
um, chickpeas, so beans, lentils, and chickpeas, but I like to focus on chickpeas in specific. Um, raw oats, cashews, things like barley, for example, is a fantastic source of prebiotics. Um, what else do we have? Um, things like artichokes as well, asparagus, um, and a whole range of foods. But again, this is also to highlight the importance of diversity in your diet coming from plants and your dietitian can really, really help you put a nice, well-rounded approach, especially if you're in remission, but can also support you during times of flare-ups. That kind of wraps up basically what I wanted to say when it comes to diet is that the beauty about working with a dietitian is that they can walk you through all these different phases, regardless of where you are in your treatment, regardless of where you are in terms of the activity of your disease. So make sure you find someone upon diagnosis. And honestly, it is a long-term journey. I do work with my clients now for years. And as I mentioned that earlier, I've seen them, you know, preconception, and then they tell me they're pregnant and then going through, you know, through the whole pregnancy together and even postnatally after their babies here. So, you know, I've, I've been with my IBD clients for a very, very long time. So do you have any take-home messages, Dad, from your side before we close it off? Definitely. You know, the, as we said before, ICF-CRIT is a chronic, progressive inflammatory bowel disease. So, so it needs continuous follow-up and monitoring. Yeah, there is a long list of side effects of the drugs, which we didn't talk about it, but it is discussed with your doctor. But however, side effects doesn't has to happen with everybody, and the benefits weigh the side effects in many circumstances. So, it is very important to continue medication. You have to be in mind that surgery is a possibility for some patients only who fails the medical treatment, and sometimes the surgery is the life saving. Uh, approach to patients. As we said, be, there's no definite cure of isocritis or Crohn's disease, but the present medication can almost lead you to a normal lifestyle. Don't stop or change your medication without referring to your doctor. And a word to the female patients that they can have a normal pregnancy and healthy babies but this should be planned with your gynecologist and your gastroenterologist. With that, everyone, I hope we didn't bore you once again with our chit-chat on, or a detailed chit-chat on ulcerative colitis, but I really want you to tune in next week because our next guest is someone that I truly admire and we could have honestly spoken for hours about fertility from within and talking about the gut fertility connection with accredited practicing dietitian Stephanie Velakas from Australia. So dad, you missed that one, but I'm sure you're going to appreciate our chat. So make sure you tune in next week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Gastroenterologist and His Daughter podcast. Don't forget to join us again. And if you've been enjoying our chats, Make sure you subscribe, follow, or leave a review on your chosen platform.